It's February 1720. Loch Craignish on the Argyle Peninsula, Scotland. A light drizzle of rain mixes with the sea mist that cloaks the creeks and inlets of the rocky West Highlands coastline. It's a few days after the Eagle was run aground and her crew disappeared. A man named James Campbell arrives at the crash site to investigate. He is the 54-year-old sheriff's deputy for Argyllshire. Following up on rumors that locals have been turning up an assortment of exotic goods. Climbing aboard the grounded vessel, he goes below to inspect the now empty hold. He finds discarded animal pelts, a rotten bale of silk, and some smashed crates spilling out sodden tobacco leaves. The smugglers and wreckers have been and gone, stripping anything of value from the abandoned merchant ship. Campbell walks about the captain's cabin. Something doesn't feel right. The exotic mix of ornaments and styles. This New England merchant was well-traveled and had a very eclectic taste. After rooting through some drawers, Campbell finds what he's been looking for. The logbook. Now he can find out their port of departure. He flicks through. Coordinates, weather reports, trade stops. And then, nothing. Several pages have been hastily torn out. Why? Now he knows something is wrong. One of his men interrupts. He's told there's something outside he has to see. Scouring the surrounding shore, they spot a glinting sign, then another and another. Scattered about the stone beach are Portuguese coins, golden moidorish. And a little further off, Campbell's men have found an abandoned chest, silverware, along with discarded weapons. He begins to build a picture. Pirates. He gathers his men and orders them to search the nearest towns, knowing the pirates are at most only a few days ahead of them. He sends riders to scour the roads. Take every path, search every tavern, look under every rock. Do not stop until these pirates are found and brought before him. The manhunt has begun. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates. The show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, 
the truth is far stranger than fiction. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It's February 1720. From London pickpocket to pirate to wealthy fugitive. At just 25 years old, Walter Kennedy has already lived quite a life of adventure. He's risen from rags to riches, fighting in sea battles, raiding colonial forts, capturing treasure fleets, and of course, committing acts of unspeakable violence on both sides of the Atlantic. He's come a long way. And now, after crash landing ashore in Scotland, Kennedy and his crew faced the prospect of losing it all, along with their lives. It's every man for himself. In a desperate scramble, they flee for the hills, carrying what they can, discarding what they can't. They have little choice but to abandon much of their treasure, leaving a trail of evidence behind them. It's now a race for survival. Can they outrun news of their arrival? To do so, they must put as much distance as they can from the wreck. They must escape their past. Kennedy heads south along the coast, hoping to avoid detection. Others fly north, disappearing into the hills. Some go inland to towns and cities where they hope to hide out. And some travel south, sneaking along back roads by night and across the border into England. In all directions, the terrain is inhospitable, the weather is foul, and the local communities unwelcoming to suspicious strangers. These next steps won't be easy. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. So, you know, very early on, they've crash-landed in an unusual spot, in a pretty rugged area of Scotland, and their immediate problem is somehow getting away from this vessel. 
which ties them pretty definitively to some sort of criminal maritime activity. So they begin spreading out. Most of them head south. You know, and you can imagine if they'd managed to reach Edinburgh or Glasgow, they might have been able to hop on a ship, sail somewhere else, right? And once you are sort of in Wexford or Bristol, you're a fair way away from where this has happened. But in that period between when you can sort of really distance yourself from the vessel and the crash landing, they are extremely vulnerable. And many of them don't do a great job of obscuring their connection to that vessel. But soon, the word gets out. Stories spread about new arrivals. Rough-looking seafarers recently shipwrecked returned from abroad with strange trinkets and foreign coins. One man in particular is quick to pick up the trail. James Campbell, the 54-year-old sheriff's deputy from Argyllshire. A distinguished cavalry officer who fought in some of the bloodiest battles during the War of Spanish Succession. After he is alerted to an abandoned vessel left at anchor in Loch Craig Nish, he quickly finds himself on the pirate's case. When local Scottish officials hear about this mysterious ship that is washed up on shore, they go down and look at it. They see a ship of New England make on a Scottish shore. It raises some questions, right? Which leads them to then go on board and they find this journal. There are missing pages. It raises even more questions. Why would you remove pages from a journal? Why would you leave a journal behind? Where are the people from this vessel? If they needed help, why have they all disappeared? It's an extremely suspicious situation right from the get-go. Campbell knows how critical the immediate time period after the crash is. He needs to catch up to the pirates before the trail goes cold. For the fugitives, the clock is ticking to escape the crime scene. A dozen or so pirates quietly take back roads south to England, with many headed for London. But it's not just the journey they should be wary of, it's also the destination. London is the epicenter of the 18th century maritime world. It's no doubt somewhere they all know well. Many probably have family and friends they can rely on. But they also run the risk of being recognized. Sometimes we forget that you can't just sort of change your name and move to a different place and become an insurance adjuster in Wisconsin. You can't do that in this world, right? It's much harder to move between occupations and classes and regional affiliations and stuff like that. In an age of sail, all voyages end in London eventually, right? And so if you are in London, you are in the beating heart of this vast network of maritime relationships. It's a community in which everyone through a vast network of sort of interpersonal relations you know, there's a fair bit of, uh, you know, you know someone or they're a friend of a friend or you've sailed together at some point, right? There are taverns where sailors congregate. And so it is more difficult to escape detection in some regards if you stay close to that maritime community because the chances that you'll run into someone who knows you or who knows someone who knows you begin to rise quite exponentially. If the pirates who make it to London want to enjoy their ill-gotten gains, they will need to keep their heads down and hope they don't run into anyone who can identify them. Heading in another direction altogether, 
is Walter Kennedy. Perhaps playing a smarter game than the rest, he travels to a nearby Scottish seaport and takes a berth on a merchant ship bound for Ireland. As he approaches the docks, he is on the brink of freedom. Once he sets sail away from Scotland, he should be able to slip off the radar for good. We live in a time where information travels almost instantaneously over vast distances. Kennedy and his crew are living in a time where information can't travel faster than people can. So there is a chance to outrun the news of the shipwreck if you can stay ahead of notices and letters, etc. And it's just something to bear in mind, right? It's not like they're going to get to Edinburgh and like, we've already heard of you. We got an email about it. Now, Kennedy manages to escape this dragnet, right? He slips through the cracks. Ireland is a pretty good bet. It's an Anglophone country. We've got a decent chance of potentially sort of managing this tricky reintegration process there. It's far enough away from London that perhaps I can avoid running into someone who recognizes me, but close enough to Britain that we have a decent chance of maybe, you know, making a life. As Kennedy walks up another gangplank on another dock, his feelings must be mixed. His dreams of being a pirate are over. As crewman and quartermaster, he was respected and feared. And now he has a bag full of gold and jewels to show for it. But as a pirate captain, he was an abject failure, facing mutiny, sailing off course, crashing in Scotland, losing so much of their wealth leaving his crew scattered across the highlands, now scrambling to escape with their lives. It hasn't exactly gone to plan. But then again, was there ever really a plan? All he can do is continue to roll with the punches. Like any pirate who wishes to slip back into law-abiding society, Kennedy will need to keep his counsel, blend in, and spend his wealth wisely. If necessary, greasing the palms of locals and bribing officials along the way. Now, they do use some of that money in some cases, right? There's at least one township where they sort of bribe the locals to keep quiet. I guess in the short term, a decent plan. But in the long term, you still have to get somewhere where you can conceivably establish some distance geographically and legally from this ship, which is you know, in terms of piracy, the sort of smoking gun for all of these men. And some of them succeed. But it's easier said than done. Many of the pirates lack the patience to fly under the radar for very long. Relieved to be alive, most can't help but riotously spend their treasure away on booze and brothels at their earliest opportunity, causing a lot of noise and attracting a lot of attention. Some of them perhaps, you know, also thought, well... I've got this money, I'm gonna spend it now because I don't know how long I've got to go. And it is important to remember, you know, yes, it wasn't like you had to file tax returns and explain your wealth, but this is also a society where people are gonna ask a lot of questions about things that you have in your possession, right? And particularly if, and this is what undoes so many of Kennedy's men, if the money you have is unusual, if it comes from somewhere far away, in Argyleshire's small fishing villages and highland farms, a scurvy-looking sailor brandishing exotic gold coins is not something likely to go unnoticed. 
and this goes all the way back to Avery as well, right? The gold that they had, they couldn't explain how they acquired it. So in many ways, the better option is to not spend that money, particularly not early on, right? Is to actually keep the money that you have accumulated safe somewhere because it draws unnecessary attention. Inside a cobweb-covered tavern, two grubby sailors drown themselves in beer and wine. Boisterous, they laugh and joke. The tavern owner has promised them a bed for the night. He smiles through his blank teeth as he fingers his Portuguese coin under the bar. Ask no questions, hear no lies. This dark, dingy tavern is no stranger to criminals. But these pirates are hardly laying low. Their loud boasts draw inquiring looks. Sat in the corner, a quiet Scot eyes the pair. He snorts as his privacy is suddenly invaded by the foul, sour-smelling seaweed stench of the two drunken fools. The pirates knock over chairs, spill drinks, and start harassing the locals, waving their purses of coins in the air and daring any to try and take it from them. Drunk as they are, the blades and pistols poorly concealed under their coats do enough to keep most eyes averted. But the quiet Scott continues to watch them. Eventually, the two seafarers stagger outside to empty their bladders. A moment later, the Scot stands and quietly follows them out, casually picking up the iron fire poker from the hearth as he passes. Outside in the cold night, a stone's throw from the entrance, the two pirates stand side by side, relieving themselves at the edge of a field. They gently sway in the breeze. With a sickening thud, the Scot bludgeons the side of one of the pirate's skulls. Nearly too drunk to turn, the other is too slow to react. The quiet Scot frisks their jackets, picks up the heavy purse of Portuguese coins, and walks away into the night. At this rate, James Campbell won't need to track down all the pirates. For many, their recklessness will be their undoing. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
By the end of February 1720, Sheriff Deputy Campbell arrests a total 21 out of 42 pirates, half of the Eagle's crew. The judicious lawman interrogates them one at a time at Inverary Jail. They resist, but Campbell's intimidating stature and eerily calm demeanor is enough to make them sweat and eventually crack. Some stick to their story. Many say they were part of a New England merchant crew who got caught in a storm. But Campbell continues to break them down. One by one, their stories crumble. Eventually they confess. They admit their crimes and name their accomplices. One name in particular comes up more than once. Walter Kennedy. And once pirates are captured, as it turns out, their new plan for surviving is to cooperate with the authorities and give them any evidence they require, which is a classic, right? I know there are a few pirates who sort of are famous for defying the authorities and going off to the gallows and full regalia and saying like, whatever, kill me, I don't care. But the vast majority of pirates are ordinary people who don't want to die. <laughs> and so if that means turning King's evidence to avoid potentially being executed, I think it's very relatable. Of the 21 captured, nine pirates are sentenced to hang immediately. It's possible some escape the same fate because of their confessions. It seems Campbell is a man of his word. For them, it's likely a lifetime of hard labor in the colonies. The sheriff deputy accompanies the nine guilty sailors to the gallows, where they are hanged to a rowdy crowd of Argyle Scots. Elsewhere, according to Charles Johnson at least, Kennedy arrives in Ireland, where he disappears from the public eye. However, information about where he lived or what he did with his time and money remains a mystery. Which is as it should be. After all, Kennedy's aim is to become a nobody. And he's not alone. A number of his crewmates named in the confessions are later listed as not to be found. This long list of not to be founds. Those are the pirates I really think we forget, right? The not to be founds. They're not famous, right? We don't know their names. They're not in Johnson's history. Those are the successful pirates, right? They managed to come away with a pretty substantial fortune and didn't pay for it with their lives. Not to be found is the gold standard of pirate retirement. The ones whose names we never knew or who disappear from history for good. But we do know Kennedy's name, and we know that his story does not end here. For in December 1721, a year after vanishing in Scotland, Kennedy turns up again, in, of all places, London. What drives him to leave Ireland we cannot know, but even Kennedy must realize it's a risky move. There could have been people where he was staying in Ireland who knew that he had been part of this crew that had crash landed in Scotland and, you know, may have racked up some debts, might have upset his neighbor. We just don't know why he made this move. It is also an extremely risky move because he is returning to the nerve center of Britain's maritime empire. And it is a place where the chances that he's gonna run across someone who will recognize him are much higher. In the past, 
pirates like Thomas Chew, Henry Avery, Blackbeard, Jennings, and Hornigold were able to prove that successful retirement was possible, even while being hounded by the law. Christopher Condent even married the sister of a French colonial governor. But these pirates all gained their freedom through a mix of manipulating corrupt officials, leveraging social connections, and converting prize money into political power. It's the kind of transaction that comes from being born to a certain class. It requires the kind of social status a lowly sailor like Walter Kennedy can only dream of. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Even a pirate such as Blackbeard, who did re-enter society for a short period of time, even he was regarded very suspiciously by the locals. So for someone like Walter Kennedy or one of his fellow crew members to try to reintegrate into society, it probably wasn't going to be very successful, especially since Walter Kennedy himself came from an impoverished background. He'd spent his early years as a petty criminal in London and then had been an ordinary sailor in the Navy. So, you know, he cannot be swanning about with governors. He certainly can't be marrying governor's daughters. Once again, we only have Charles Johnson's version of events, but Kennedy apparently returns to London's docks near Deptford and purchases a bawdy house. He becomes a brothel keeper. It's also claimed he goes back to a life of petty crime, pickpocketing and burglary to supplement his other business. Johnson goes on to tell a sorry tale of abuse and betrayal. Kennedy supposedly makes a habit of bragging about his pirate days to one of his sex workers. He provides details, names, places, murders, and robberies. It seems that one day, Kennedy abuses his unfortunate employee, who happily turns all this information over to the authorities. So was he betrayed by one of the sex workers at this establishment that he was running? I think it's possible, but I also think that it is such a classic literary twist. A woman scorned is the downfall of this infamous pirate. A little convenient from my perspective. From Kennedy's convenient confession to his sex worker's retribution for his abuse and all the obvious moralizing that his wicked life leads to his downfall, it has the feel of classic Johnsonian storytelling, the critique of Walter Kennedy, the pirate pimp, what we do know is that Walter Kennedy, who successfully managed to avoid capture for over a year, is suddenly identified and apprehended shortly after his return to London. How we get from Kennedy sort of keeping low profile in London to being put on trial is an interesting one. There have been other cases where former pirates had been kicking about in London, walked into the wrong pub, and someone sitting on the other side of the tavern is like, hang on a second. That's the guy who took my belt buckle, you know? <laughs> so it had happened before, and for whatever reason, Kennedy finds himself arrested. It's spring 1721. Inside the tunnel dungeons of Bridewell Prison, Kennedy waits anxiously in his cell. He paces impatiently, awaiting the imminent arrival of an unknown visitor. When the visitor arrives, he steps into the light to better see the pirate prisoner. Although Kennedy hasn't a clue as to the identity of the well-dressed merchant who stands before him, the same cannot be said for the visitor. 
Despite Kennedy appearing much diminished, filthy and bearded as he is, Thomas Grant recognizes him immediately. This is the pirate who almost killed him. Thomas Grant, now trembling with both anger and anguish, soon composes himself. He recalls Kennedy's words and deeds from when they met a world away and four years ago. Grant touches his face. He can still feel the imprint of Kennedy's fist on his mouth. Had Kennedy not tortured him so greatly, perhaps he would not remember his face so easily. According to the original report on the 28th of April, 1721, Kennedy would then have murdered him if some of the crew had not ordered Grant out of the way. He happily identifies the pirate for the authorities. Perhaps Kennedy should have heeded that old pirate warning. Leave no witnesses behind. After all, dead men tell no tales. Kennedy was not a background member of the crew who just happened to be helping carry crates. He was someone who people remembered as a figure who kind of took the lead in some of these attacks. And for Kennedy, you know, it's a sort of combination of being in London where there are so many potential witnesses around and being a member of the crew who had been a bit more prominent and a bit more bold in his actions. It meant that there was someone that the Admiralty could put on the stand, who could point the finger directly at Kennedy and say, yes, he was on the ship. Yes, he participated in robbery at sea, which is the textbook definition of piracy. Kennedy's rise to the role of quartermaster and later captain was due to his bold action as a pirate. But those actions have consequences. Kind of a poetic justice type thing that this one guy that Kennedy went out of his way to mess with happened to be in London at the time when this investigation is proceeding and it's his undoing. Kennedy is transferred to Marshall Sea Prison, where he waits for his trial to begin. Fearful, with no options left, he does what so many other pirates do when facing the gallows. He spills the beans. He gives up the names of pirates he knows have escaped. And it's not just names. He gives contact information, addresses, and names of associates. He turns on his former crewmates in an attempt to curry favor with his captors. Kennedy gives up half of his crew and supplies even addresses for some of them, which is kind of wild. And also, interestingly, right, he knew where they lived, which to me suggests that at the very least, some of these former pirates kept in touch in some regards. But it's to no avail. He is tried alongside a number of his fellows. The verdict is quick to come through. Twelve pirates are convicted. Seven are spared. Ten, including Kennedy, are sentenced to hang. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. At 26 years old, the ex-pirate captain finds himself at the end of a long road. But the final destination almost seems inevitable. Kennedy wasn't really that exceptional of a pirate. In fact, his story was pretty typical. 
Many pirates grew up quite poor. Many were poverty stricken. A lot of them were probably illiterate. And many people who were in the Royal Navy and in merchant ships did experience a lot of rough conditions. And it was many of those people who ultimately did choose to kind of go into piracy. A lot of pirates did die young. Many of them were in their 20s and their 30s. And the majority of them were probably unmarried. But what does make him a little bit exceptional is that having this very typical background and managing to become a pirate captain, that is unusual because the vast majority of pirate captains already had the really good leadership experience. They were probably literate, probably educated, at the very least a veteran of something major like the War of Spanish Succession. So Kennedy as a pirate himself, totally typical. As a pirate captain from his position, that is really, really unusual. Walter Kennedy was born in the gutters of London's docks, and it seems he was always destined to die there too. At least his death draws a crowd, and history will remember his name. 19th of July, 1721. Warping. Execution Dock. A hawker jostles his way through the thick crowd, clutching his satchel, brimming with papers. He's here not for the spectacle, but to cash in on the public interest. He's selling pamphlets containing Walter Kennedy's life story. As he squeezes his way through pockets of light in the crowd, in the distance, Walter Kennedy and a handful of other condemned men slowly approach the gallows. The throng of spectators squeezes forward to get a better look, almost crushing the young news vendor under their well-heeled feet. The hawker brushes himself off as Walter Kennedy turns to give a final address. Some in the crowd hope for a heroic last stand, swearing oaths, unrepentant to the end. But what they get is the somber reflections of a regretful young man accepting of his fate. He ends with a warning to those who'd follow him. Though it is a common thing for us when at sea to acquire vast quantities both of that metal which goes before me and of gold, when we go to death, we have not wherewith to purchase a coffin to bury us. The message is clear. Wealthy pirate princes are indeed legendary. They are fantasies consigned to history, the stuff of bedtime stories. Some are moved to pity for this sad, wretched youth. Some perhaps even cry out, appealing for a last-minute reprieve. But Walter Kennedy is no fool, and nothing if not a survivor. Kennedy's testimony, and particularly his description of his own career post-piracy is given on the gallows. And I think we tend to think that that's a moment where people would be extremely truthful, which is probably true in some respects. But it is also a kind of a stage, and there is a, a well-established kind of cultural convention about how these final speeches are supposed to go. And one really important component of that is demonstrating contrition, affirming that your crimes were wrong. And there, there are even sort of almost like formulaic phrases that people will use again and again. And 
for some, there could be, you know, there's always that dangling possibility of a very last minute clemency. So Kennedy has a very strong incentive to imply that piracy doesn't pay when he's standing up there with a noose around his neck. Kennedy looks out one last time to the city that birthed him to the River Thames beyond. That great waterway that catapulted him across the world into great sea battles against the Spanish, to West African slave ports, and to Portuguese treasure ships on the coast of Brazil. It was his escape from poverty and gave his life excitement and meaning. But the piper must be paid. If he does still hold out hope for a last-minute reprieve, it's in vain. The noose is placed around his neck. The roaring starts up, and Kennedy's face goes deathly pale. The crowd goes home. The hawker carries on his business. All the while, Kennedy's body sways in the air, suspended in the spring's breeze. A warning to others. In the British Gazetteer, sold ten days later by the same hawker, it says, he was very easy to die and hoped he had fully made his peace with God and knew not when he could be better prepared to leave this world. Kennedy was without a doubt a committed pirate and brutal criminal. But was it a life he actively chose? It also seems like a tale of a young boy caught up in events bigger than himself. I do think that sometimes we ascribe to Kennedy a sort of mastermind role or a kind of an authorial role over this twist that he may not have actually had, right? I think it's very possible that Kennedy was someone who adapted to extremely fluid, evolving circumstances around him. And in that regard, he was certainly a survivor. I think his career really shows that he was someone who, in terms of his, relatively speaking, long pirate career, he had a knack for being able to swiftly and effectively take advantage of opportunities that arose. I always ask this, when, the, when a mutiny breaks out on a ship, and you're fairly confident the mutiny is going to succeed, you decide which side you want to be on. It's like, I want to be on the side that's not being thrown overboard, even if I'm not particularly sympathetic to this plan. And then, you know, Davis dies and Roberts is the captain. You're like, okay, well, yeah, I'll roll with this. So, I don't know, it just feels to me like Walter Kennedy's life was a rolling series of crises to which he adapted. Kennedy got closer than many pirates who dream in vain of striking rich and getting away with it. He even succeeded in disappearing for a year until his crimes caught up with him. Maybe he lacked the social connections to cover his tracks or rehabilitate his reputation. Maybe he was just unlucky. Kennedy's death is another nail in the coffin of golden age piracy. For those still living on the account, they are on borrowed time. Day by day, escape is a rapidly diminishing prospect. As Charles Johnson says, thus we see what a disastrous fate ever attends the wicked and how rarely they escape the punishment due to their crimes, who, abandoned to such a profligate life, rob, spoil, and prey upon mankind, contrary to the light and law of nature, as well 
as the law of God. Next time on Real Pirates. For decades, the British press have amplified and exaggerated the horrors of piracy, and the general public have lapped it up. But like the boy who cried wolf, they'll hardly believe it when faced with the real thing. A mythic monster who truly lives up to the billing. Meet Ned Lowe, the most ferocious and psychotic pirate to have ever sailed the high seas. His name will become a byword for barbarity, and one New England fisherman will witness it all firsthand. Find out next time on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast, produced by McAllister Beckson, written by Aman Khalid, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Sole, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.